0: It is exciting to be in God's house today, Amen. It reminds me of the cartoon I saw that was a depiction of two demons who were assigned by Satan to guard the tomb of Jesus in case he came back. And the cartoonist had drawn them there, and you could tell they were real nervous as they were sitting there guarding the tomb of Jesus. And one of the demons said, "Do you think he's coming back?" And the other one said, I sure hope he doesn't come back. If he does, all heaven will break loose. <laughs> and that's what's happened. All heaven is breaking loose. You know, the rain, I, I apologize this morning to the nine o'clock crowd, but the more I've thought about it, I'm glad it rained. I mean, God wants to see who's serious about coming to church, you know, and uh, you'll make it through the rain. We had a great crowd at nine o'clock and, uh, I remember the preacher was visiting an old farmer one time who'd been out of church for a while and he, he said, uh, you know, the pastor said, Farmer, we miss you at church. He said, well, it's been raining a lot. And the preacher said, "It well, it's always dry at church. And He said, that's another reason I don't come. So uh, hopefully it won't be dry this morning. But we are glad you're here. What a great day to celebrate the resurrection. All heaven has broken loose. I was sitting in my backyard last night. We got a little patio thing there and I was studying before it got dark and I was looking at the azaleas that had bloomed and we got dogwoods in the front yard just looking at the green grass and how beautiful spring is. Isn't this a great time of year? And it's no accident that the resurrection happened in the spring of the year. I love what Alexander McLaren said. He said the empty tomb Has turned every blossom of spring into a smiling prophet of the resurrection. Isn't that great? The empty tomb has turned every blossom of spring into a smiling prophet of the resurrection. I hope that you'll leave this place today. If you don't remember anything else. Every time you see a bud. Every time you see a blossom. You'll be reminded of the resurrection. That that flower is a smiling prophet. Of the resurrection. Turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our passage this morning deals with the plain facts of the gospel. The plain facts of the gospel. You know, there are people today who want to be confused by different things or want to overly complicate certain things of the Bible. But the gospel is very simple, as we'll see this morning. But sometimes people do get confused. I want to tell you a true story. My son used to ask me, he said, Dad, are you preaching or telling the truth? This is a true story. I was working out one morning years ago in Sylacauga, and this guy, who wasn't even a member of our church, but he said, i got to tell you about a conversation with my five-year-old granddaughter. It was around Easter time. And she said, Papa, we don't have to go to school on Friday. And he said, Honey, why don't you go to school on Friday? She said, Well, it's Good Friday. And so he thought he would test her and say, well, honey, what happened on Good Friday? She said, oh, Papa, you know, that's when Jesus went into the temple, turned the tables over and said, I'll be back in three days. (laughs) She was a little confused. But Paul, in our passage this morning, wants us to know the facts and there will be no confusion. Paul says this, verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Those church, that those are the facts of the gospel. Christ died according to the scripture, he was buried and on the third day he was raised according to the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of the resurrection, truly a resurrection gospel. Lord, we thank you this morning that Jesus is alive, that he is in this place today. His spirit indwells the hearts of every believer. No longer is there a temple that contains the the presence of God, but you have tabernacled within us. You have made us your temple. We are the temple of the living God. Lord, we thank you for the resurrected Christ who's made all the difference in the world in our life. And God, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. Communicate to us, Lord, the power and the simplicity, the necessity of the gospel today. And Lord, may we never be the same. For we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Paul reminds us of the facts of the gospel. What is the gospel? He says very clearly, very simply. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the 3rd day according to the scriptures. Now let me tell you, according to the scriptures. These are the scriptures, of the Old Testament. The Gospels were not were actually were not written at, until after Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures, and we're going to refer to some here this morning that pertain to the facts that we're talking about. But it's important for us today to know the, and get the picture of the Old Testament so that we can understand and have a greater appreciation for the New Testament. To understand the law, so that we can understand and appreciate grace even more. So when he talks about according to the scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament. And the heart of the passage this morning is the gospel. I want you to know that. The gospel. He points to that. Look at verse one. He said, I want make, to make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also you received, in which you stand, by which you are also saved, So Paul points to the gospel in verses 1 and 2. I will make known to you the gospel which you have received, you have believed, you've been saved, and now you are standing in the gospel. So he points to it in verses 1 and 2. Then he explains the simple facts of the gospel in verses 3 and 4. And so we're going to spend most of our time this morning in verses 3 and 4. So we want to remember that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, as we see in verses three and four, four things this morning about this gospel. First of all, the importance of the gospel, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Now, Paul is not just speaking of chronological order or time frame. In other words, this is the first thing I told you about. Yes, it probably was the first thing. He said, I preach Christ, Christ crucified. There's no other message. So he probably mentioned this first chronologically, but he's speaking in terms of priority. Priority, the importance of the gospel. Paul wanted to remind the church at Corinth that the gospel is of utmost importance, first and foremost, These factions, excuse me, these facts are the foundation of all that Paul has to say. Look at what he says in verse 1. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. I preach this to you. This is what Paul preached everywhere he went. The simple yet powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. So these are the facts. These These facts are the foundation of our faith. You know, when you think about it, it really is amazing. Think for just a minute. All Christian faith comes from verses 3 and 4. Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. All Christian faith comes from these facts. And when you think about that, it's even more amazing. We have Christian philosophy, Christian religious systems, Christian moral and ethical teachings, all levels of Christian education. From preschool through masters, we have Christian counseling, we have Christian hospitals, we have Christian orphanages, and on and on. All that's done in the name of Christianity comes from three simple facts. Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised from the grave. Church, that's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. Is it really a gospel if there is no resurrection? No as we will see as we go through. As a matter of fact, the gospel is the foundation of our life. Paul says that, again, in verse 1, this is what you receive in which also you stand. You know, the gospel is more than just what we go out on Monday nights and try to share with as many people as we can. The gospel is more than a little pamphlet that we want to present to our friends and neighbors and co-workers. The gospel is our life. Someone has said, the gospel is not just the ABCs of our faith, It is the A to Z of our faith. The gospel covers it all. So Paul says, you were saved by the gospel. You received the gospel. You stand in the gospel. So we see the importance of understanding the impact of the gospel. It's interesting. The three-part story of Jesus is no ordinary story. The fact that he died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised again, turns his story into the gospel. You think about it. If there's no resurrection, then the story of Jesus is just another good story. I know we have a lot of readers here and you like to read good novels. And, but the resurrection turns this narrative into a gospel. The fact that Christ was raised from the dead turns this, this from an ordinary story into a supernatural story. His resurrection, the gospel, Paul reminds us, is the ground or better yet, the rock that we stand on. We see that in verse 1. You received it in which you stand. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? He said, he who hears my words and and believes them is like a man who built his house upon a rock. And what happens when the storms come and the winds blow? I will not be moved because my house is built on a rock. See, that's where we are with the gospel. The gospel is important to us. Pastor Colby and I are committed to preaching the gospel at Alberta Baptist Church. We want to be a church that stands for the gospel. We want to be a church that communicates clearly the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the importance of the gospel. Secondly, in this passage, we see the simplicity of the gospel. You know, if, if we were to go to children's church and maybe find a first or second grader back there, just about any second grader who's been in Sunday school for any length of time, if you ask them, what did Jesus do? Kind of rapid fire. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. Have you heard a child say that? Jesus died on the cross for my sin. Church, that's it. That is the simplicity of the gospel. The gospel is so simple that even a second grader can repeat it. And somewhat, to some degree, maybe even explain it to us. The simplicity of the gospel. But let me remind you, as Adrian Rogers would say, it is simply It is is profoundly simple, but simply profound as well. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that the gospel, there are things about the gospel that are mysterious. He says that even the angels long to look into. They don't understand it all. You know, I'm, I'm sure they're pretty amazed. They're looking at God on a daily basis. They're looking at us and they say, God, why would you do that for that bunch? I mean, that makes no sense at all. I mean, how can you explain this to us? And so there are things that they don't understand, that they long to look into, but yet the gospel is so simple. Why did Christ die? He died for our sins. Paul's very clear about this. He died for our sins. What if Paul had just said, Christ died for us? If Christ died for us, there would be no gospel. Because see, a lot of people die for other people. We have some very, you know, heroes of the heroes, not of the faith, but military men and women who have died for us. They have paid the ultimate sacrifice as they have given their life on the battlefield to protect our freedom. They have died for us and we are thankful. But, you know, Jesus didn't just die for us. He died for our sins. He died for our sins. And that makes it even more profound to understand that he, Paul makes it very clear that if he had not died for our sins, there would be no gospel. His death was a sacrifice for us. He died for our sins. His death was a sacrifice, a willing death that met the prescribed penalty for sin. He was our substitute. His death made atonement for us. Now, if you think about the prescribed penalty for sin is what? Death. From Ezekiel to Romans 3, the soul that sins shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. If we sin, we must die. I'll never forget Jerry Clow. You remember Jerry Clow, the old southern humorist? He said, I remember hearing that for the first time. He said, the wages of sin is death. He said, I realized I was in a heap of trouble. Hey, we're all in a heap of trouble. But yet... Christ died for our sins. He paid the penalty, the penalty that requires that sin requires. He died for our sins. He was our substitute according to the scriptures. See, Isaiah said that he would be pierced through for our transgressions. Isaiah said that he would be crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah again said that the Lord would lay on him the iniquities of us all. Do you see that? Christ died, the simplicity of it, for our sins. He took your place. He took my place. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ took our sin. If he were to to put my coat on him and give me his coat, he took my sin, I take his righteousness. Paul says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Second graders know this. Christ died for our sins. The simplicity of the gospel. But notice what else he said. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Isaiah foretold it 800 years prior. Then verse 4. And he was what? Verse 4. He was... Buried. Y'all wake up now. Okay. All right. Great. Okay. You know, I had to stop this at, at the nine o'clock service because y'all were coming. I don't have to stop this one. Okay. Cause we don't have another. One. So let's go. Christ was, he was crucified. He was, uh, died for our sins and he was buried. Now, why is that significant? Because Jesus Christ was buried in a borrowed tomb. Joseph of Arimathea. Every Most everybody knew Joseph. He was buried in a tomb about a stone's throw from the city of Jerusalem. Now, Teresa and I went to the Holy Land a couple years ago with Brother Dan and uh, Tammy, their daughter, and Katie. And we saw two sites. There's the Holy Sepulchre, Sepulchre, and then there's this garden tomb. And there's some confusion or debate about which one. I like the garden tomb better. We could walk in there and look around. It's in the garden. We sat there. We had communion with 800 of our closest friends. And it was just a beautiful place. Very touching. But there's some confusion about which one was the tomb. But let me tell you this. Paul mentioned the fact that Christ was buried because this was written about 25 years after the resurrection. There was no confusion about where Jesus was buried. The disciples knew where he was. The Roman soldiers knew where he was. The scribes and Pharisees knew where he was. So Paul reminds us Christ died and he was buried in that tomb. See, the problem is, when they went there, the grave was there, but the body wasn't. The grave was there, but the body wasn't. All they had to do, the scribes and Pharisees, to stop this religious uprising was just produce a body. Here he is. We got him. All the Romans had to do to stop this uprising was produce a body. But they didn't. You know why? He wasn't there. He wasn't there. Christ was buried and he was raised on the third day. Raised on the third day. The grave was there, but the body wasn't. Again, according to the scriptures, the psalmist said that his body would not undergo, dec- undergo decay. Isaiah 53, 11 says, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. The resurrection reminds us that not only did Jesus die to pay the penalty of our sin and that he was buried, but that he was resurrected, conquering death. So that we have the hope of eternal life and the certainty of new life now. That's the significance of the resurrection. Is there a gospel if there was no resurrection? No. It's just another good story. But the resurrection makes these events good news. Makes it gospel. The gospel, profoundly simple, yet simply profound. Let's look next at the necessity of the gospel. Notice what Paul says here. That Christ died for our sins. Christ. Now, Paul often referred to Jesus. And he talked about Jesus. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. You remember that story? Had a personal encounter with Jesus. Paul talked about Jesus. But here, by design, he mentions Jesus as Christ. The Christ. The Christ. The anointed one. The anointed one. Emmanuel. God with us. Christ, Paul points out here, died for our sin. It wasn't just any other ordinary man. If Christ had been another prophet, if Christ had been just a good teacher, then there would be no gospel. But Paul Paul tells us here that the Christ, Christ died for our sins. The anointed one, the promised one, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one. If Jesus were an ordinary man, there'd be no gospel, just a sad story of another man who died unjustly. But the gospel tells us that God became a man. Did you know that? God became a man. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. This is the Christ who died for us. The anointed one, the God man who came to die. And here's why this is so important. No ordinary man could ever die and take away your sin. As I said, people in the military have died for us, but it had to be a someone other than just one of us. Look at this in Psalm 49.7. When I saw this, I said, Man, this is great. Psalm 49.7 says, No man, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. No man can do this. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever. No man could ever redeem. You know, wouldn't it, you know, Paul said that. He said, if I could, I'd go to hell for the Jewish people. If I could, I'd give my soul to redeem my kinsmen. But he said, I can't do that. Why? Because no man can do that. There's never a man who met the qualifications. See, to redeem somebody, we had to be an eternal sacrifice to be sufficient once for all, and also had to be a substitute, had to be one of us to represent us. No ordinary man could do that. Do you see that? But Christ died for us. The Christ, the Messiah. That's what we find in 49.15. No man can but God. Don't you love the but gods of Scripture? (laughs) Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses, but God, and thank the Lord that he interrupts human history. This verse 15, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Let me tell you, we can't, but God can. We can't, but God can. Say that with me. We can't, but God can. That's what Jesus said, you know, when they asked him, who's going to be saved? He says, with God, nothing is impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. So we see the necessity of the gospel. Paul explains that more clearly in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Paul says there, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just So three times, what do we know about God? He is what? Just. He is just. The soul that sins shall surely die. The soul that sins shall surely die. I remember speaking to uh, a group of college students one time in Alabama State down in uh, Montgomery. And I shared with them from James. It said, whoever keeps a whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all. I said it again. Whoever keeps a whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all. And a young black guy sitting on the front row said, "Dang, <laughs> you know, you think about it. God is just, and we're all guilty. He is just; his justice cannot be, uh, you know, we can't escape his justice. But look at this: He is just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ, so as to be the just and the justifier. Church, this is the gospel. We have to meet God's standard." God's standard. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's glory is the standard. It's not your neighbor. You may be better than your neighbor. But the standard is God's glory. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have to reach, meet his standard of justice. If he didn't, he would not be God. He would not be just if he just said, okay, boys would be boys. But what God did, he sent his own son. So he is both the just and the what? justifier. That's the necessity of the gospel. We cannot do it ourselves. We can't, but God can. We can't, but God can. God is the just, and he is the one who justifies. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Look at verse 16 of chapter 15. For if the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If there's no resurrection, there is no gospel. If there is no resurrection, we have proof positive that Jesus was just another man, another prophet, a good man. But God having furnished proof to all men by having raised him from the dead, The gospel is a gospel of resurrection. John Whale said the gospel does not explain the resurrection. The resurrection explains the gospel. Belief in the resurrection is not an appendage, an optional part of the Christian faith. It is the Christian faith. The necessity of the gospel is that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God what? Raised him from the dead. Then you shall be saved. Do you see the necessity of the resurrection? If there is no resurrection, there is no gospel. If there is no resurrection, there is no gospel. But thank the Lord there is a a resurrection. One more thing will be done. The power of the gospel. Look at chapter 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, you know what that means? First fruits was an offering that was offered to God. Whenever the, in the spring of the year, whenever the crops would start coming in, they would bring the first of their crop. We would bring peaches or, or whatever we got coming in. And we would give that as an offering to God. But first fruits has, has an implication or it implies that We present the first to God and the rest is going to be ours. We're going to go home and make a peach cobbler. We're going to give the first, the best to God. And then we, the rest of it's for us. That's how we give. We give a tenth of our money. First, you know, the first tenth, first ten percent goes to the Lord, and then we live off the rest. But the implication here for us is, that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, it means that He was first, and that means what? There are more to follow. That we will be resurrected. First Corinthians fifteen is the the best detail of the resurrection in all of Scripture. All fifty eight verses tell us about the resurrection, not just of Christ but of our resurrection as believers. But Christ is the first fruits. There will be many others to follow. It's no accident that the resurrection took place in the spring of the year because this is when all the plants begin to bloom and the fruit is produced. Again, Alexander McLaren said, The empty tomb has turned every blossom into a smiling prophet of the, resur- of the resurrection. The empty tomb has turned every blossom of spring into a prophet. So when we leave here and we see a bloom, what are we going to think about? The resurrection of Christ. But let me tell you, as we close, to me the most powerful, the most effective, smiling prophet of the resurrection. You know what that is? That's the church. Look at your neighbor. Look at your neighbor. I mean, the church. This is who we are. The most powerful proof of the resurrection is that we're here this morning as the church. For over 2,000 years, men and women, boys and girls, have given their heart to Christ. They have followed Christ. Millions, if not, I mean, have died for Christ. There are people today, 2016, in the world and parts of the world who are dying for their faith in Christ. What could cause people to do that other than a resurrected Christ. When Paul came to Corinth, it was a tough place. Let me remind you of the type of people who were in Corinth. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine, Paul says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. When I call your name, stand up. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, none of these, Paul says, will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a rough crowd, isn't it? But notice what he says. Such were some of you. Do you see the power of the gospel to change lives? Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Who but the risen living Christ could have taken thieves, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, liars, idolaters, and just worldly pagans and pulled them together. Notice verse 1. It's, not, it's not insignificant Where Paul says, I won't make known to you brethren. These fornicators, adulterers, They are now brothers in Christ with Paul. Folks, that's the power of the gospel. He says, you received this gospel. You were saved. Now you stand in it. They were from all walks of life, all types of sin. In the church today, we have people from all walks of life, but we all have one thing in common. You know what it is? We're sinners redeemed by the grace of God. We're sinners. The church is the only organization that we can join where you have to admit that you've made a mistake. You have to admit that you need, have a need in your life. And we all need Christ. People of all walks of life are in the body of Christ. We're sinners. There are a thousand ways to be broken, but there's only one way to be healed. I think about my life. For 18 years, living without Christ. Worried. I was a worrier. I had ulcers when I was 16 years old. Worried about everything. But Christ has given me peace. I think about my uncle who's an alcoholic. Struggled with alcohol all his life. Uncle O'Dell gave his heart to Jesus. Just like that. Think about my brother. Running around, Navy, drinking, drugs. And he was stubborn. My mom said he would argue with a signpost. And now he's the most godly man I know. He's so laid back it takes him an hour and a half to watch 60 minutes. He is just a, he is a godly man. My cousin who struggled with drugs all her life, their only hope is the gospel. The power to change lives. Let me ask you, is there anybody here that's been changed by the gospel? Is there anybody? Yeah, amen. I hope, hope you can say yeah, right here. To me, that's the most powerful proof of the resurrection is that Christ changes lives. I was reading our Bible reading Friday morning and it was in Luke with the parable of the prodigal son And these words hit me twice. You know what the father says about his prodigal son? He says twice. He says, for my son was dead, but now he is alive. You've read that. My son was dead, but now he's alive. That is the power of the resurrection, the power to change, the power that enables us to turn from our sin and to return to our father. We can't do it without him people have denied and debated the resurrection they've tried to explain it but they can't refute the fact that the gospel continues to change lives even today we follow him not because he's we follow him because he's not dead a dead christ could never have been the basis of a living church so now the church we talked about buds and blossoms the church is a smiling prophet of the resurrection. The church, like the blossoms of spring, is a smiling prophet of the resurrection. And here's what I, I just want you to stick this in your mind. Every time we meet on Sunday, we're a smiling prophet of the resurrection because we don't meet on the Sabbath anymore. The first day is resurrection day. Every time a believer is baptized by immersion, they are buried with him in baptism and they are what? What? raised to walk in newness of life. Every time we have a baptism, and we hope to have a bunch of them coming up, every time we have a baptism, we're a smiling prophet of the resurrection. Every time a sinner confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead and they are saved, every time that happens, we're a smiling prophet of the resurrection. Everything about the church should sing the resurrection of Christ because, the resurrect, because without the resurrection, there is no gospel. So this morning, please hear the good news of the gospel. God loves sinners. God loves sinners. Christ died for sinners. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the grave to give us hope. Our responsibility is to recognize our need to confess our sin and place our faith and trust in Christ. We do that when we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and he offers us new life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the resurrection.